You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome to the all sixth edition of the 602 Club. I am one of your hosts, Sith Master Matthew Rushing, and with me, Sith Master Bruce Gibson. Misa back! <laughs> Hi, Sith Jar Jar. How are you? I don't do Jar Jar very well, so I'm not going to even <laughs> attempt to go any further than that. I'm just going to stay right there. Oh, man, that was awesome. That was just absolutely perfect. We didn't plan that at all, folks. So um, welcome to the 602 Club. And tonight, I'm, I'm just excited. To, we have talked a few Star Wars books recently in supplementals uh, because we had some come out. But this one's been on the books I don't mean that as a pun, for a while. Uh, and it's something that was on the schedule for a while. In fact, it actually got pushed back a little bit because of uh, Star Wars Celebration. And Bruce and I are very excited to be talking about Lords of the Sith, one of the first Star Wars books to come out in the brand new canon. And we're finally getting an opportunity to get around and talk about it. After two um, years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, you know... Um, that doesn't have any reflection on what we think of the book, so don't think about that right up front. Uh, heck, if you're worried, it's good. So, uh, But uh, before we totally dive in, uh, you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Uh, we're still running the uh, iTunes review contest right now. Uh, over there on Apple Podcasts. And so make sure you uh, do hit us up with a star rating and review because I really would like to give away some very exclusive Funko Pop stuff to you. Uh, and all you need to do is go to Apple Podcasts and give us a star rating and review. In fact, we have a brand new review. wanted to thank them. KC Trekkie FM said... Five stars. Recent Star Wars movie episodes are great. And they talked about um, in their review... Going back and listening to all of the Star Wars episodes we did, Bruce, uh, leading up to The Force Awakens, which is awesome. Uh, they really liked those. And they also said that, that this podcast is essential to Trek FM and helps the wonderful Trek talk keep fresh by exploring other topics. And so really appreciate that. Uh, and, of course, they're in the running now for what we're giving away in our review contest. So make sure you get that in uh, the next few days. It's going to be ending soon on June 2nd is is the day uh, when we'll be ending that. And we'll announce the winner next week for our Wonder Woman show. So, uh, Bruce, uh, I wanted to ask you, this isn't even on the outline, so I'm throwing you for a loop here. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, oh, Nosa, Misa. So Lords of the Sith was one of the first books. And uh, I wanted to ask you, did you read Rise of the Dark Lord that came out in Legends that was set pretty much right after Anakin Skywalker gets in the suit? Uh, did you read that one? 
I think I did. I can't even remember for sure, actually. If I remember correctly, it's James Luceno. Yes, 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 I did. Actually, I think I may have listened to the audio version of it. Oh, fantastic. Um, So I thought it was interesting that, you know, coming back into the new canon, that they really, I felt like in some ways they wanted a book that focused on Vader. And this is set in the dark times. This is about eight years after the Empire has come to power. So it's not right after he gets in the suit, but it's still, it's it's early in Vader's tenure in the suit. And so I thought it was interesting that, you know, we kind of let go of, of all of that Legends material, but the story of Vader seems like one that they didn't want to let go of. Yeah, and going into this book... I was expecting something a little different. I'm, I don't want to get into that right now for sh- at this moment, but it's. I did feel like I was going to get more about Vader than what we did and more about Palpatine than we did, which I want to talk about that more as we get through this because I have a feeling we have a little bit of a different opinion about how this... Uh, story plays out in the Star Wars universe. Well, I think that's that's a great segue. I mean, because so the book is made up of the storyline between Vader and the Emperor, and Chamsundula and his Free Ryloth group. Those are the main characters in the story, um, with some other side Imperial characters that play in as well. Uh, so, kind of coming into this book, it sounded like. For you, you thought that this was going to be more about Vader and Palpatine than it would be about anything else. Like that they would say take up two-thirds of the book and the rest would be about one-third. Exactly. Well, I think I heard things about the book where Palpatine and Vader get stranded together. And I thought the main thrust of the story would be these two out camping sitting by the fire not quite like that actually i'm kidding but really somebody rock climbing almost dying (laughs) that kind of thing with some marshmallows yeah and palpatine looking at vader through the binoculars i'm afraid i'm gonna start talking to myself that sort of thing but uh i expect it to be this big rivalry between them that's just like they're stranded and there's this fight between them and it's it really gets intense and and instead, we get some of that, but it seemed to be more of a story about the rebels, at least in the first half of the book. I remember when I first read it, I kept thinking like, wait, I thought this was about Vader and Palpatine. I mean, they're in here, but it's more about Syndulla than anybody else and, and his crew. And so it kind of threw me off and I didn't care for the book as much the first time I read it, but now reading it. I skimmed through it a second time, and I think I liked it better because I knew what I was expecting. I think calling the book book Lords of the Sith led me down the dark side of the path of thinking this was just going to be all about Sith. But that's just, to me, a smaller, smaller part of the book. It's more of about a rebellion against Palpatine and Vader. So your experience the first time you felt a little bit let down because you felt like they had set the expectations too much on the side of Palpatine and Vader. Yes, and that is the key word, expectation. 
I try not to go into movies and books with much of an expectation because I don't want to be disappointed. I want to go in and try to be as fresh as I can. And the problem is when I went into this book, I was expecting a story about Vader and Palpatine stranded throughout the book. And it's just them. It's just the two of them like going at it and, and, and trying to do survive or whatever it is that they were going to be doing. And I mean, again, we get that, but you know, that's like the last third of the book. But, but then at the same time I think about it and I'm like, well, that would actually kind of be a boring story for a full novel. It's just the two of them being stranded. I mean, it's like, how much can you how much of a story could there be? So it makes sense that we have other characters and another situation going on. So if I if you go into this book expecting a story that takes place eight years after the Clone Wars and what's going on with the rebellion, we're seeing, you know, the seeds that that goes towards the start of that and what Palpatine and Vader are doing at that time and what the relationship is, then I think it plays as a much better book. I think it's interesting because, you know, Lords of the Sith is one of the first books to come out as well as A New Dawn. And I, I, what I think is that those two actually work well in conjunction together, especially when I think about the big thing that was also happening at the time, which was the beginning of Rebels, and how these two kind of set the stage for the fledgling rebellion. It's not even a rebellion at this point. I mean, here in Lords of the Sith, it's the free Ryloth movement. And of course, in A New Dawn, Hera hasn't even started her little group. I mean, she just meets Kanan for the first time. So I think it's it's interesting that those two pivotal characters of Hera and her father, Cham, are both involved in acts of rebellion against the Empire, but that it's at the very beginning. And it I feel like both of these books do a good job of, of setting that up, especially when we look at it going into Rebels and then, of course, what they'll build into Rogue One and everything. So when I look at it in the context of the history of, of the universe, I think it works really well. Um, I don't remember... I, I Honestly, I remember reading this the first time and really thinking I, I just really enjoyed it. Um and I didn't necessarily know what to expect, I think. I, I was like you, and I was like, okay, is this going to be all about Vader? Kind of the way, and that's why I brought up, uh, you know, Rise of the Dark Lord, which is really about Vader as he gets accustomed to his new life. But this isn't that story. This is more a story, I think, for Vader of fully embracing the dark side and exercising the demons of his past. And it seems like that's one of the things that Palpatine has set up throughout this book is the opportunity to really test his apprentice and see where his loyalties lie. And I guess that maybe it's a good time to just kind of dive in and, and talk about them, the predators of this book, as they're called, uh, the apex predators. And I wanted to ask you about that because it, it is a big part of the story is the relationship between Palpatine and Vader um, and the idea of these Lords of the Sith. Uh, how did you like that and, and, as it did play out and what we do get in the story? I like that the relationship isn't 
quite what I was expecting. I think that Palpatine and Vader really had a lot still to work on between each other. Again, when I was saying I was going to this book, this book the first time, I think I was expecting almost Vader wanting to uh, still be very subservient to the Emperor, which he is. But I feel that there's really a trust issue between the two. There's this weird thing when it comes to the Emperor. He preaches about how the apprentice should really want to take down the master but at the same time as he's pushing vader to that point like that's where you need to be going you're gonna you're going to want to kill me you want to come after me that's what you need to do to go full on the dark side and become a full sith is want to take me down and, and take my place but at the same time then he's looking at it like don't you be thinking about taking me down right now don't you be coming after me and so it's this weird dynamic of I'm pushing you to do something I want you to do, but I don't want you to do it. And Vader's at this place where he's thinking about who he used to be and who he is now and how good it would feel to take the emperor down, but not do it. So there's a struggle in Vader because Palpatine keeps pushing and pulling and pushing and pulling. And I thought that was interesting because I always expected it to be more like Vader is just doing what the Emperor says. And, and to the point that Vader just starts to get angry and pissed and want to take him down. But Vader's really struggling if he wants to do that or not. I think that's a, a really interesting and enjoyable part of the story is getting into the head of Vader and the Emperor in some ways. I mean, what's kind of cool about this book is you kind of get a peek inside the Emperor's thought process uh, just a little bit, and we don't get that a lot in any Star Wars, really. Uh, but on the same token, I, I think it's great because we really do get the opportunity to be inside Vader's emotions and his head space about what he's thinking about and... Part of, uh, as I said earlier in the book, it's Vader exercising these demons of, the, of his past because there are still moments to which he has flashbacks, basically, to characters, people, you know, Obi-Wan, Padme, Ahsoka. All of these people still permeate his thoughts uh, at the most inopportune times, and I think that's really interesting. Um, and in a lot of ways, the imp is using this whole experience on Ryloth is a way to see if he can purge this from Vader. And if he can't, then he realizes basically he might have to search. Almost, it almost feels like this is, the, this is the real test. Like, my apprentice gets over this hump or maybe I have to look for a new one. It's that there's still good in him. And I think that's what the Emperor is maybe feeling and testing is Vader isn't fully on the dark side because there's still good in him. I would say it's almost as if Vader is 90% dark or 95, I'd say no, more like 95, 95% dark. And there's just that 5% of him that still yearns for Padme and his mother and the friends that he had and, and the Jedi but he's not fully there, which is in a lot of ways surprising to me because I would think once you go down that path, 
you're fully down that path and you wouldn't have that good side to you. Because what about other Sith in the past? Was there always that balance of trying to rid yourself 100% of that good side of you? Or are you fully immersed in the dark side? How immersed is the Emperor? Is there any good in him? I guess what I'm wondering is if anyone's on the dark side and is a Sith, is are they full 100% dark side or is there still some light in them? And that's something that they always have to struggle with. Because if that's something Palpatine struggles with occasionally, then he's going to reflect that on Vader and expect that from him too. Like, why doesn't Vader fully get... Why is there still good in him? Of all... Of all the things that he's gone through and who he is and, and, you know, even when Dooku became a Sith, was there any good still left in him? If there was no good left in the Emperor and Dooku or even Maul, why would there still be good in, in Anakin into Vader? Or am I going too deep now? No, I think that's a, that's a really good question. And it almost, uh, it get this may, I could be completely off, but this is my reaction to that question is that Vader is lying to himself. Uh, he says in the book, um, and paraphrasing that, you know, Master, don't worry about me when I think of these other people. Basically, it just brings me rage and I feed off my rage and, you know. Um, but I, I think that Vader is trying to almost convince himself that he doesn't have any feeling except for rage and hatred towards somebody like Anakin, Ahsoka, Obi-Wan, the Jedi, all of these people. But I almost feel like it's always a choice. um, It's always a choice to try and convince him that he actually agrees with that. And there's a point in the book, too, late in the story, where... Vader is facing down with character name Isval, and she was Cham's right hand person. Um, and in a lot of the ways, we'll talk about them later. But in a lot of the ways, she's much like uh, the Hera, Hera Kanan relationship, kind of what her and Cham have. But she's given herself up uh, to to hold off Vader long enough so Cham can get away. And there's this whole. Th- interaction they have and she says I hate you and everything you stand for but when I murdered I murdered out of love Vader raised his blade his breath loud and steady and he spoke with his voice deep and hollow as a funeral gong I know precisely what you mean he said and then he slashed and it's so interesting because this is going to where I wanted to go keep going (laughs) so Vader says that he understands the idea of murdering for love. And therefore, it seems to me that every time he's committing murder, every time he's doing the acts for the emperor, it's almost as if like he's, he's trying to do these dark things to make himself dark and to cover up the fact that he can't cover up the goodness that's still in does that make sense like yes. that it, it it's like the light won't go away i think it's because of love i think that's what i was going to say uh before you actually read that passage i was thinking anakin had experienced love love with his mother love with his friend his mentor obi-wan 
love, of course, with Padme. I don't know if if Palpatine had really experienced love or had much love in his life. If you consider some of the Legends material we got on Palpatine, not really much love there. And, uh, you know, Maul, he was taken away from his mother. We've heard stories, again, in Legends about Maul. There isn't much love in that either, and I would assume the same for Dooku. I think Anakin's life has always been, he's always been loved, but love has always been taken away from him and now he's he may be on the dark side and love drove him there but love also keeps the light in him and as soon as we get to return of the jedi there's palpatine taking love away once again from anakin from vader as he tries to kill luke so i think it's all about that still good in him is the fact that he still carries a torch and a torch is light And that's what he has in his soul. There's still a glimmer of love and hope within Vader, Anakin himself. That's a, I really like the the way that you're bringing that all together, Bruce. And I think you really are onto something because when you think about it, you know, Luke has no reason to unconditionally love his father, to accept his father. As he says, I accept the fact that you were once Anakin Skywalker, my father, which Anakin is the part of, of Vader that he's tried to destroy and to suppress and to get rid of. And as his son offers him kind of this unconditional love that he doesn't deserve, I think you're absolutely right. Something breaks as he looks at the Emperor trying to take that away from him. And he realizes, no, I'm going to turn the tables. I'm going to do the thing I couldn't do before, which is give up myself for my son. You know, he he couldn't give up Padme before because he was holding on to her, but here he's willing to give himself up for somebody else and he hasn't been able to do that in a very long time. And wow, I think that really does speak volumes in this book and the way it connects to the story and the way it it kind of prepares you in some small way for what will happen in Return of the Jedi. But it also makes sense why Palpatine has allowed this whole thing to happen uh, in the storyline for them to be sabotaged on the Star Destroyer, for them to come to Ryloth. All of this is part of his plan because he is trying to test his apprentice to see where he stands. And I think that's one of the things where it was so interesting, the mirroring the very end of the book where what Vader is called to do is basically repeat the Jedi Temple scene with the younglings. But now with even, I mean, even more people. And these are just completely innocent. You know, th- these Twi'leks have nothing to do with this rebellion. But but Palpatine wants them all killed because they've seen too much. Uh, and he just lays waste to this village. Well, Palpatine wants Vader to kill the Jedi in the temple in Revenge of the Sith. And to me, that makes sense for Vader to go and do that. Not just because Palpatine tells him to, because Vader sees that there's a reason why the Jedi must end. But when it comes to these innocent village people, there really is no reason to get rid of them. I think the only, you know, Palpatine's only thing is, well, they've seen us, they know where we are, you know, we need to get rid of them. I would expect Vader to say no. 
And that's when he confronts Palpatine. It's like, and it's not because, oh, I don't want to kill anyone. I don't have it in me. But it's just like, there's no reason to. That, you know, I'm not going to be your lap dog and just kill people because you say to kill people. I don't see really any reason to do that except to prove to Palpatine that you are 100% committed to him. But I don't know if Vader is, you know, I think he would, I almost want Vader to say no to Palpatine. I almost want there to be a struggle. I want these two to go at each other. And maybe by the time we get to the original trilogy, maybe Palpatine has won enough that Vader has to bow down to him. But I really want more of a struggle between these two. I almost want Vader to want to kill Palpatine. Well, and it's interesting because there is that moment at the end where they're, they find the girl uh, who's from this village, and immediately Palpatine is about to kill her, and Vader stops his blade. He pulls out his lightsaber and he's going to whack her, you know, and Vader stops the Emperor with his own blade and says, no, and the Emperor's like, what? You know, and he's like, well, maybe she could be of use. And it does feel like there was that part of Vader who he just doesn't want to see that innocent girl murdered for no good reason. I mean, he has no qualms about taking out all of these uh, indigenous life forms that have been trying to kill them, you know, for the last, like, 45 minutes to an hour uh, in their life because it's, it's just an animal, and they're fighting for survival at that point. Uh, they are showing themselves to be the apex predators on this planet. But when it comes to an actual person, th- th- there was still that hesitation. And I feel like that's why Palpatine turns to him and he's like, no, the moment you spoke up, this girl was dead and so was her village. Right. And that scene bothered me at first. It makes sense now, more than I'm thinking about it, as this is a way that Palpatine was testing Vader. Because when they come upon the little girl, I didn't really understand why Palpatine was like, oh, okay, there's a little girl here. Well, let me just kill her. I don't see him being the type that just kills people just to kill people because they're standing there. I mean, I just don't think that's him. But if he sees that as more of, ooh, an innocent little girl, this is a good way to test Vader. And of course, Vader fails because Vader does protect the girl. And I think maybe that's what starts working in Vader's head is he knows that he failed that test. So when Palpatine asks Vader to kill the rest of the villagers later, Vader knows that he has already failed once. He can't fail again. So then the ultimate test would be now to pass it by killing everyone, including the little girl, which would be interesting because it's we're led to believe he went and killed everyone. But wouldn't it be interesting if he found out later that the girl still lived? Ooh, that's, yeah, that's actually, that would be really interesting. I'd love to see that followed up. Lords of the Sith too. Exactly. The girl lives. <laughs> the girl who lived. Um, and no, it's not Harry Potter's sister um, that we didn't know about. What did you think about the whole, I mean, because there's a lot of action in the book involving Vader and the Emperor. Um I mean, there's Vader rampaging through a Star Destroyer, just murdering everybody uh, that's in his path. There's, you know, Vader and the Emperor fighting together against the Leleks that are trying to kill them there on Ryloth. Um, What did you think about all of that, you know, 
Sith saber action. I really appreciate it better the second time I read this book because I've seen Rogue One. And I've seen that Mm -hmm. ending. That ending Mm -hmm. was like almost like playing throughout this book. And it really had more intensity to me because I've seen it on screen like this before. So I love this Vader that's just like ruthless and it's like, okay, I'm taking them all down. I've got to get to where I need to go in this. And so nobody stands in my way. So watch out. And that saber's just going back and forth and and just slicing everybody up. (laughs) I mean, I loved it. I I thought it was great. Um, I I also love that, uh, did you notice that Vader kind of gets a uh, Force Unleashed moment? As well, yes, yes, and I love Which, that. Ooh, that was awesome. <laughs> I mean, he pulls a freighter out of the sky. It's not quite a star destroyer, but it's still pretty sweet. Yeah, and when the the rebels, and I, I mean, I know we're not officially the rebellion, but that's what I'm calling them. The rebels were were on that star destroyer, and they were leaving. They got into a shuttle to leave, and and they they were able to get away. And I really expected Vader to just use the Force to grab that shuttle and just bring it back, and he didn't. And I'm not really clear as to why he didn't do that or why he couldn't. So I'm just accepting the fact that for some reason he couldn't do it. But I would expect him to be able to to see the people he's chasing down get in a shuttle, and before they take off, him be able to stop the ship with the Force. And I liked um, in all of this saber action, as we mentioned, uh, there is the moment, there are a couple of moments, uh, as Vader does actually think to himself, well, maybe I just let my master die here. Uh, Because there is a moment where without his intervention, without Vader intervening on Palpatine's behalf with these uh, Leleks who are just everywhere, uh, that they're, I mean, they're just fighting hundreds of them he'd die and Vader makes the conscious choice to inter intervene and save his master uh, because he doesn't, I don't think feel ready to take on the mantle of being the only Sith Lord around. Um, And I thought that that was a fascinating thing that, you know, as we talked about, there's this whole rotating deal of, you know, Palpatine saying, you should be ready to do this. You should be wanting to do this. And Vader finally has the moment where he's like, oh, I could just let him die. That'd be great. And then he decides, well, maybe I'm not ready for that just yet. So let me ask you this. When you watch the prequel trilogy and we see the relationship between Anakin and Palpatine, Anakin looks up to Palpatine almost like a father figure. He obviously likes Palpatine. What do you think Vader's impressions uh, are of Palpatine the Emperor. Do you think he likes the Emperor? Does he still look at him as a father figure? Or is it just really he is now just ruled by this master and possibly hates him? I think there's a little bit of both in there, honestly. I, I really do. I think that it's it's a it, that's what makes it such a twisted thing. And it I think it's one of the things that informs Vader in this story to not just straight up let, you know, Palpatine die or try to murder him himself at that point. Uh, I think there's still something in the relationship that feels mentor-ish like beyond just a Sith master to an apprentice. You know, that there is that old man with the boy still there 
in the relationship. And I think it, it just makes it really twisted and creepy and sithy. Uh, and and that's the, the thing that m- makes Palpatine such a master is he's kind of crafted that relationship with Vader that, and, and of course Anakin for all those years, that brings this into another realm other than just like him and Maul, where it was always just master, apprentice, I beat you down, you do what I say, that kind of thing. Or, you know, even Dooku, where it's two men who have very similar goals and have joined forces, you know? Palpatine cultivated that perfect relationship with Anakin from a young age uh, so that he wasn't just this overlording master, but he was the person that Anakin could trust, you know, beyond anybody else. And I, I think that really informs the whole thing that we're getting here and maybe why it's harder for Anakin above someone like Maul or maybe even a Dooku to think about, well, I'm just going to off him whenever I get the chance. Yeah, they, I guess because they do have history. They have history of when Anakin was young as a boy, and, and which that history isn't there between Palpatine and Dooku, but it is there between Palpatine and Maul. Uh, and maybe Maul's relationship... I think, yeah, my impressions are that Maul and Palpatine were more master and apprentice, and there's a little more there between Vader and Palpatine. But, I mean, we really don't know. We, ha- we don't have a full scope of Maul and his thoughts about Palpatine. But um, I guess I'm just, it's just interesting to me when I think back to Attack of the Clones and seeing how Anakin and is with Palpatine, and then to see them here in this book and... I don't get the impression that Anakin really cares for the Emperor. And I don't mean care like, oh, if he got sick, I'd bring him chicken soup and make sure that he's comfortable <laughs> and feeling better. <laughs> but I need one order of chicken noodle soup. <sighs> and a special cold tea the Emperor loves. <laughs> and give me a spoon. <laughs> but uh, I... But I guess I'm just wondering if I just see Vader thinking so much about the past, like he's still connected to it. And Palpatine was part of that past, but I don't feel he's got that connection to Palpatine from that that time before he switched to Vader. I don't feel like he has the feelings he had for Palpatine now like he did then i just feel like he's more of the lapdog and just trying to pass the tests that palpatine gives him because he's trying to be a good little vader that's interesting because i i feel like it seems like a little bit of both to me that he's kind of that lapdog because of that relationship you know again i like i this the total for me the distinction between maul and Vader is that Maul was always treated as nothing but a, a dog to to serve and and to do the will of his master. But Anakin didn't have that experience, and so I feel like he's even more predisposed, though, than to want to serve and to make his master proud because of the relationship they had before. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it and I guess it makes sense too because if it's if you know it's like okay there's us we have a certain relationship with each other we're friends but if all of a sudden I'm now working for you 
and you're my boss, that's going to change things. I mean, we could still be friends, but then at the same time, you're my boss. And if somebody were to say to me, oh, you know, how are things with Matt? I'd be like, well, things are great. It's not like the way it used to be where we could just like say anything or do anything or whatever. But, you know, I can still hang out with him, but it's just not the same because he's my boss. I have to be a little more careful. The relationship is because you didn't put your cover sheet on your TPS before yesterday and we still need to talk about See, that. See, this is this is what, what I'm saying. In the old days, I, I could be more open about this and say, just <laughs> screw you, but now I can't. <laughs> a yes, sir. So maybe that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's it's more of a yes, sir kind of thing. It's like, yes, like I yes. looked up to you as a father figure, as a mentor, but now I'm working for you. I have to do what you say. So the relationship is different now. And mm-hmm. and yeah. so I think that's where my head's going right now and accepting the fact that this is a different relationship with Palpatine that he could have than he had when he was Anakin. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I And I think it's so interesting to watch that play out. And I think that's one of the strengths of the book is to watch that relationship. Because again, it's not something that we get to see a lot of in canon. And so I, I would honestly love to see we made a joke about it, but Lords of the Sith too, basically, to see how that relationship progresses uh, with the two characters, uh, and and because I, I, I don't know it, it it's fascinating to to watch that interplay between two Sith like that, uh, and uh, we don't get really enough of it, I don't think, in in the Star Wars literature, uh, and so um, well, let's uh, gosh. Wow, that was great. See, you know, this is what I like about the show. I read a book and then I, you know, okay, I finished reading the book. I think a little bit about it and I move on. But then I come on shows like this and we talk about it and I start realizing, oh, wow, I hadn't really took the time to really (laughs) think about it. It's like I'm getting a lot out of this. So, you know, the stars are adding up. Oh, I love it when I make the stars align for Bruce. Um. I want to ask you, because we could go on and on about them, and seriously, there's so much more that you could really dive into with that relationship, but the Free Ryloth movement and Cham and his his group, um, I thought was really fascinating to watch, uh, especially with Isval and their relationship and the way that worked, and and just, in a lot of ways, you know, you think about, so free Ryloth movement is all about Ryloth and you've got somebody like out there and we know of, uh, you know, Saw Guerrera is fighting in, in places. You've got other areas where rebellion is, is, is or uh, uprising is starting to slowly happen. And it was so interesting to me to be able to sit here and kind of focus on one of the linchpins for what makes the early rebellion and, and just Cham Sundula and his whole demeanor and his relationship with his people and everything I thought was pretty fascinating because in a lot of ways he is kind of a mirror for Saul Guerrera because he's somebody who's been fighting since the Clone Wars. He's been fighting basically the same battle for a, a very long time and yet he doesn't end up kind of going down that same road as Saul does. And in such a, you know, extreme way. I love the fact that you brought up Saul Guerrero because I did think that I saw in Sham a little bit of Saul. That sounds so weird. It almost sounds like it should... Saul, a little bit of Saul? <laughs> I, because I'm, 
you know, because we've seen so much about Saw Gerrera this past year, I started to look at Sham and I'm like, okay, I'm seeing the same type of pattern here, but he then doesn't go down that same road. But it's all about, you know, we got to, we, we must do what we must do to win. But at the same time, Sham does get to points where he's like, well, maybe we shouldn't go this far and maybe we should rethink this. And then he starts to hesitate. This far, no farther. <laughs> exactly. But I will say that I like this aspect of the story. I liked it the first time. I love these characters and the whole rebellion, what they're trying to do or their rebellion, not the official rebellion, but I liked it even better this time because since this book came out two years ago, because we've gotten rogue one and catalyst and, uh, unfortunately Matt aftermath does play into this for me rebels and rebels. Yes, exactly. And because of those, this just fits into that as an early story that's leading up into all those things that I had just mentioned, all those stories. So this is that, that first step and I guess uh, A New Dawn has that too, but this is the first step that we're seeing from the Clone Wars and starting a rebellion against the Empire. So I really enjoyed that aspect of this book. I think this book works even better now that those other stories have been out there. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, because again, when, I, when we put it into the historical context of where it sits now with all of these things, it it so influences what you think of when you think of Rebels now, when Hera and Cham coming into that series, but you also think of the way that it influences the story you get in Rogue One and all of that kind of stuff. I, I just feel like it's it's working together so well to create a really cohesive whole in that dark time period that's really working for me. Basically, let me put it this way. The dark time period is working for me in a way that the sequel trilogy period in its literature isn't. And that's because this feels like it's creating a very fluid story that fits together perfectly. And and the pieces are all falling into place and it. it's just as we talked about you know we did Rebel Rising and um the uh Guardians of the Wills book and the way that those pieces kind of fell into place to really flesh out the story for all of Rogue One this you know along with A New Dawn and Rebels all fits into that as well and it's all I mean it's it's creating this beautiful mosaic of stories that happened during this time period and I, I really think it works and one of the strengths is seeing a different type of leader that almost could go down the road that Saul does, but he has people around him that are able to call him out. Isval is the character who, for him, he's trying to rein back and not allow her to get herself lost in the war and find her way back, but she then does the reverse for him, like the, the same for him. And I thought that was a really nice symbiotic relationship that they have together where they're trying to make each other better. And you mirror that with the relationship you get with Vader and Palpatine where they're trying to make each other worse, you know. Uh, and, and I thought that was a really subtle and wonderful part of this story that it made both of those sections work together uh, to see the the complete opposite spectrum that these worldviews are coming from it's like we're seeing the sith 
could fall apart because we're seeing a struggle there between the two and the two could break apart. And one's thinking about possibly one day killing the other or how great it would be if the other wasn't there and the other's wanting the other to want to be killing him but not killing him or whatever. I mean, we see that struggle there which could break apart. And like you're saying, when we see the other two characters on the good side of things, they're always finding ways to be pulled together. So we're seeing the good side uh, gain in strength and we're seeing the dark side start to crumble. Well, and, and it, I think that's the beauty too is that, you know, they have a relationship that kind of mirrors Hera and Kanan's where they would be together. They would be in a relationship. Uh, they would probably be married if this war, this conflict wasn't getting in the way and they suppress those feelings so that they can work together. But they have, I mean, they love each other. And what's beautiful is that their love causes them to want to sacrifice for each other uh, and not murder the other. <laughs> you know, like Vader is willing to murder for love. Um, they're willing to sacrifice for love. And that's a completely different thing. And again, like you said, it's it's the way in which good triumphs over evil. Uh, because sacrifice then ignites um, more sacrifice. Like people are inspired by that. And that's one of the things that I thought was really interesting here. Because the emperor did all of this so that Cham would ignite the flame of rebellion too early. And he feels like this allows him to have stamped out any rebellion and puts him on better footing. And what I thought was interesting that it, what you see in this book is it seems to cause these rebellious ripples throughout the galaxy. Like what happens on Ryloth, it doesn't stop the movement. It seems to be fuel for the movement and other places. And that's interesting because Palpatine positioned it as a way to put a stop or discourage others from rebelling. rebelling. Because if they see what happens on Ryloth, then they're not going to want to do it. But it actually works opposite. But, you know, Palpatine is so calculating that you would assume that, well, he may say he's doing this to prevent others from wanting to rebel, but the plan is that he knows it's going to have that ripple effect to cause more rebellion. Now, why would he want more rebellion? I'm not really sure. But the guy's so crafty and smart, you would think that he would figure out what the the reaction would be to this and that he would want that to happen. And that would obviously be more rebellion. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Well, and it, <laughs> yeah. And it it's the, it, it's, it reminds me of what Leia says, you know, the more you type in, tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. And that's really kind of what happens to, to the emperor here, you know, because he causes Cham to, basically use years of of weapons and people that he's amassed and and a technology and on ships in one fell swoop to bring down one star destroyer in the hopes of destroying the emperor invader but he's out now like 
and so what was so interesting is that there is an enormous cost that kind of comes in fighting the empire. You know, just to bring down one star destroyer, it takes, you know, everything Cham has, and and yet he still isn't able to accomplish the mission that he really set up to do, which was to kill the emperor and Vader. Like it's it's just a massive undertaking when you think of what it's going to take to bring down this empire, uh, and it almost breaks Cham too. It's only his fall and, and his followers who were able to talk him back into the fact that, no, this doesn't end here. Even if we lose today, we still keep fighting. Yeah, because he was ready to give up, for sure. And I was just thinking that if Palpatine says, okay, this is a way to make an example to other planets not to rebel, but maybe he knows that they will rebel and this will just actually create more uh fights against the empire maybe he wants that because he wants to weed out those people because in order to win and have control of the galaxy he has to have everybody controlled and he's got to take those ones that can't be controlled and get rid of them and so cham is one of those that to get rid of or to make an example of that he's going to want to quit and cham almost quit and that's what palpatine wants I want you to quit. I want you to feel like you're not going to make it and fail. And Cham almost got there. But because of the support of others and because of the friendship and the love that he has, he was able to be turned back to the support of we do need to keep fighting. We need to keep going on. Well, and and you've got to think at this point, you know, for Palpatine, who still has the Senate to contend with, even though it's, it's pretty much under his control, I mean... Ornfrein Ta is in this book, and he's just wetting his pants every time he's in the Emperor's presence. Uh, This enables Palpatine to get even more control, basically, from the Senate of, oh, we need more resources. We need more military. You know what I'm saying? Like, this gives him the the guys to basically continue the military buildup. I mean, this is only eight years into the empire. So to, and to, and to legitimize on the hollow net, I mean, you think of all, like basically Palpatine's creating fake news because he set this whole thing up. He's wagging the dog. He's creating the war that allows him to continue to tighten his grip on the galaxy. I think there's other world leaders in our on our planet that have done that too um yeah um yeah yeah you kind of manipulate the things that you want by uh doing exactly what palpatine did if he wants to create a bigger army if he wants more resources then he's got to prove to the senate everybody that there's a reason for it and so let's escalate the rebellion so i can get more of what i want and convince others to go along with me it makes a lot of sense. It also helps to recruit even more stormtroopers. Yeah, I mean, come join the Glorious Empire and, and help secure the safety and prosperity of the galaxy. Right, instead of these evil, evil terrorists that are out there trying to take us down and trying to kill people. Ah, you know, I'm, I'm manipulating you by not showing you the real truth. Yeah, gotta love it. Palpatine, fake holodet news. Sheev. Let's just call him Sheev for the rest of the show. 
Sheev. What an awful name. <laughs> oh, before we go down that road, um, let's talk about the new Imperials we meet because we get two different types of Imperials in this story. You get um, Belcor and then Moff Moors. And I thought it was really interesting to watch how both of them take advantage of the Empire, but in completely different ways. So Belcor, again, is a better character to me after all these other things that we've read and seen, especially Rebels, because he's like the fulcrum of this book. He's, he, he, you know, he's with the Empire, but he's helping out the Rebels. And I'm not really sure, I don't remember if it's even said why he's doing this. Do you, do you recall? Do they actually explain why? Well, yeah, in the book, I mean, it... it <sighs> He's helping the rebels as a way to destabilize Moff Moore's control and her position. Basically, he wants her position. So he's only using, he thinks he's using the rebels as an opportunity to become Moff. And yet, what he doesn't realize is that Cham's been playing him the whole time. Cham has been using him as leverage. Uh, Cham already has the resources that he needs through other means. He already knows the information Belcor is going to give him most of the time. Uh, he's just using that as a way to blackmail him to do what he wants when he needs to. Because the other thing that Belcor has been doing is, is he's trying to set up his, his little counterinsurgents against uh, Moff Moors and get that position. He's also been setting up in her ranks people that are loyal not to the Empire, not to Moff Moors, but to him. Like, he's been kind of creating his own little private security army within the Imperial ranks at, you know, the base on Ryloth. And so, uh, which is easy for him to do because Moff Moors is, uh, well, becoming a, you know, hut Oh, Basically. man, I was just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> on on uh, the, the you know, humid moon of uh, Ryloth in a spice haze. Wait, did we see a hut in this? Or am I confused? Yeah, yeah, yeah she, okay. yeah. So, um, yeah, Moff Moors is doing backdoor deals with a hut, giving them access to, to spice, which Ryloth is apparently... Uh, the, the mineral used to make spice, which can also make lots of other things, medical and technological um, things as well. So, yeah, I just thought it was so interesting watching these two characters because they're both taking advantage of the Empire in these different ways. And in the end, um, I thought it was fascinating kind of... Uh, they're just kind of like eating themselves, you know, like the, their power plays against each other and the way they're trying to take each other down. It, it did a good job of actually building into what we got in like the Thrawn book with the way in which the Empire works there and the blackmailing and all this stuff. It really fed into that. And I just I loved these two characters kind of going back and forth, especially by the end. And, you know. Belcor, he made his bed and he has to lie in it in the end and he gets shot down by her um, and I just thought it was fascinating you know to, to kind of watch his plans unravel and her life unravel because she made the bad choice of choosing him to put him in charge like it, it, it just works together so well 
Yeah, I'm, I was not impressed with these two. Um, I mean, I didn't. It's not that I didn't like the characters. It's just they they aren't the cream of the crop when it comes to the Empire. No, no. <laughs> Uh, they remind me of Durpin from uh, the Freemaker Adventures. So, uh, if anybody's seen the Freemaker Adventures, Moff Moores is a lot like Durpin. She doesn't want to do anything. She just wants to be left alone, basically. Uh, and so, yeah, I thought that was that was actually kind of funny. I just picture her sitting on the moon, on a moon, and people like feeding her grapes, and she's exactly just laying yes, Twi'lek slaves feeding her grapes yes. yes if they have grapes in the star wars universe i don't know i don't know they have coffee and calf so uh, maybe they have grapes well if they have wine then they must have that's grapes. true you're absolutely right they have to have some kind of fermented fruit the only so. one but i don't even know if we've seen wine in star wars the only wine i know is what luke does on tatooine ah um i don't know are are padme and anakin when they're sitting at the table there uh they're eating fruit there yes so i mean you could uh, yeah Hmm. anyway Uh, so i want to talk about one more thing before we go is just the fact that one of the things that i really like about this book and i think is a hallmark of the best star wars books uh in the new canon is when they're really focused and I think Lords of the Sith really functions well because it has one story to tell and that's about the Emperor and Vader going to Ryloth and facing down against this free Ryloth movement and all of the interactions between those characters involved in those situations. And it, it it's not a long book and it doesn't waste any of the space in it. I don't think like it, it just it tells the story and it does it with um, really, I think, just judicious storytelling. And uh, to me, that's what's made the best of the Star Wars books is when they have a laser focus. And this one does. And I think that's why, honestly, for me, it works so well. It moves along real well. It really does. I never felt like it was going off course. I didn't feel like it was dragging at any point. It just kept it kept going the same pace. It just felt like the same rhythm was there, uh, which really made it easy to read and fun to read. And when it comes to Star Wars, as it being so much of a cinematic experience, you could you could visualize this at a movie because it had a certain pace to it. So I, I do agree with you on that. Um, you know, on lately on literary treks, we've been reading some older Star Trek novels. And what I've noticed is that it's pretty much like this. It's like one main storyline throughout where newer books kind of have different storylines that kind of converge and meet at different points. They're more packed with with different stories and different things going on. And, and these older novels, some of them have just an easy flow of one story. And that's what this book reminded me of. It's you've got the rebels, you've got the Sith, and you're they're all taking place within the same story. It's not like there's something going on in this planet and over on this side of the galaxy, there's something else going on. And it's all in the same basic location. So it is a fun, easy read um, with a great pace to it. I think you said it absolutely well. And and what it really reminded me of is it actually just reminded me of the Star Wars movies and how they move along at, at such a good clip. And and there's never really 
there aren't a lot of down moments, and when there are a few softer moments, they seem to fit within the flow of the story. And I think that's exactly what happens here with Paul Kemp's book. And so, um, yeah, Bruce, uh, what would you rate Lords of the Sith? Well, as I mentioned, I like it better the second time I read it, which happens a lot of times when I read books. But I think it's different in this case because I didn't go in with the expectation of it being a certain story of just Palpatine and Darth Vader. I went into this reading it as a Star Wars story that takes place during this period of time and what's going on with the galaxy. And so when you go into this knowing that it's going to be about rebels and it's going to be about the Sith and how they play off of each other in this one adventure, it's a really good uh, story. And we talked about the pacing was is good. Um, so I would say that I would give this almost a full cup of chicken soup. I like it. That's a good one. Um, I mean, I don't know what I can add. This is a great book. It's so much fun. Uh, the action in it is pretty insane. Uh, you know, it, it's as close as I think we'll ever get to Force Unleashed in a, you know, Star Wars canon story. And... Uh, I love what we learn about the characters with Vader and Palpatine and Chams and Dula and all of this stuff. It's, it's just fantastic. And so, uh, you know, I would say that this is four and a half out of five downed Star Destroyers. So uh, it, it's it's great stuff. And I'm really glad we got to talk about this one, Bruce. And I'm, I'm honestly just glad we went back and I, I got a chance to reread it. It's it's It was a lot of fun to reread. And, and I honestly, I think I read this one in maybe three days. That's how quick this book can read. Okay, let me just say this. And I read it faster than the first time, of course, because it was a reread. I read it in one day. And it just so happens that I was flying from Atlanta to Philadelphia and back, and I had a lot of time that day, and I spent the whole time reading. And my flight was delayed. So there was a, I was able to knock it out in one day, which I don't usually do with novels. But like I said, it was, I was reading through it really quick because it was a, a reread. But I will say that when you asked me to be on the show, I was like, I don't know if I want to read this one again. But I'm glad I did. Ah, uh, that's, I mean, that's why I get paid no bucks. So <laughs> um, I really appreciate the fact that we get to talk through this stuff here in the show. It's just a blast. I'm so excited. We have so much coming up for you in the 602 Club this year. I mean, really, it is jam-packed. As you've already noticed, uh, you know, we had a lot of supplementals recently and uh, we are going to continue to bring you guys as much as we possibly can this summer. Uh, we've got Wonder Woman coming up. Uh, we've got some Arrow, some more Bond, Planet of the Apes, Dunkirk, Spider-Man, uh, Valerian. Uh, we've got new Star Wars books coming out with Battlefront 2, The Dark Tower. I mean, the list goes on and on. Guys, we're, we're going to be bringing it to you. And I really want to thank our social producers here on the 602 Club. Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson, uh, they've been with me for a really long time. And uh, they've been with uh, the 602 Club as well as Trek FM Network through Patreon, making sure that everything that we do comes to you each and every week. And uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again, uh, all pun intended, this is an expensive enterprise uh, to do each and every week. It takes a lot of money to put all of the shows that we do here on the network 
and bring them to you. We've been bringing you new shows like Primitive Culture. We're back with The Orb. We're continuing to try and bring you the best Star Trek and beyond coverage anywhere. So if you want to make sure that happens, you got to go to patreon.com slash trek.fm. See how you could be part of the team. Honestly, every little bit helps. It doesn't have to be a lot, just a little bit. Every little bit helps. Uh, and again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm. And we've got tons of great perks for you at different levels too. So we want to make sure we're always giving you back everything we can. Now, Bruce, uh, you know, when you're not uh, slashing and hacking your way through the tunnels of Ryloth with your lightsaber, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with that little line and then Rex. And you can also find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. Go to StarWars.com and check us out there. And you can find me, as I mentioned earlier, on Literary Treks talking about Star Trek books and comics. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. If I'm not posting anything, I'm definitely reading. So I'm definitely in there every day in the Babel Conference. So Matt, when you're not tearing down Star Destroyers and having them crashing into each other and on planets, where can people find you? Well, that's just so much fun, you know? I mean, if you thought Rogue One was cool with Star Destroyers pulling into each other, you have no idea what I can do. But uh, maybe I'll take a picture of it on Instagram at mrushing and post it on Twitter at mattrushing02. Uh, you can find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine. I'm also over on the Nerd Party Network at thenerdparty.com. Uh, you can find me doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills where we talk about Star Wars. Uh, we love talking uh, just random things that come into our minds, or we just recently had an interview with uh, Bob Roth and Bill Motts from the Freemaker Adventures. Uh, they're the EPs over there, and uh, it was a blast talking to them, so I hope you'll check that show out. And uh, walking through all of the Harry Potter books with Drea Kaufman, we go chapter by chapter. So each episode is a chapter. Check it out, Owl Post. You're going to love it. So thank you so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you. <laughs>